Man, oh man, well, dare we do it? Yeah, let's dare to do uh, it, I, it? I suppose. I have begun recording. I've been recording the whole time. I <laughs> should do that more <laughs> frequently. Not like we did anything interesting, but just always just in case. <laughs> you never know when a piece of gold's going to slide out of a butt. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Super Duper Stitches, the paranormal podcast about the science behind the strange. I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. Welcome back to another up. Yeah. And if you are uh, newly joining us, either for your first time in general, because you just did, or if you happen to come over from Rude Tales of Magic, thanks so much for giving us a chance, and uh, we hope you like us. And if you are one of our uh, existing listeners who has not listened to Rude Tales of Magic, you are doing yourself a grave disservice. Very, very cool. Uh, right, so last week we got through part two of our seventh Super Duper Stitious special report, so mm-hmm. if you are just showing up today, do go back and listen to that, or I guess <laughs> listen to the entire back catalog, I should say. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> listen to parts one and two of that, and then the other six special reports, and then all other episodes. Of the other episodes, our show is extremely, um, what's the word I'm looking it for? Exists. <laughs> it extremely exists. <laughs> and can good. be listened to. <laughs> Um, I was going to try to say that it had to be listened in sequence, but I could not find it. Oh, cereal is what you're looking for. Cereal. There you go. Serialized. Scrap that bit. <laughs> Seventh Super Duperstitious Special Report, delivering some science behind what makes a good superstition and what makes all of us so superstitious. And I figured now that the show is unofficially over, <laughs> and because we just focus so much on pulling that report together, and, you know, because we're about to sneeze away from society just straight up falling apart. <laughs> We could bring you a couple of random topics today. Yeah, we don't always have to have a theme for every episode. We just choose to, or sometimes accidentally do. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> Today's theme is there is no theme. That is right. And as it is an even episode, you go first? That's right. You're getting it. So yeah, back when we did our beginning of year Reddit blitz, in which we, for the sake of a tenuous and gimmicky premise, collected like 20 stories each for our first 2020 ep. Oh yeah. (laughs) uh, I found a few that I liked, but they were too long for that format. Oh boy. So I'll be sharing one of those today. Mm. Um, And the reason I'm doing it today is actually it's a series of posts from uh, late December 2019 entitled, Things That Go Bump in the Coal Mine. By user <laughs> Ballistic Habit. He's like pickaxes, helmets. Anything you run into accidentally. Everything um, in the coal mine <laughs> goes bump. Um, uh, so here's the first post. He says, I spent nearly a decade underground. I'm just I mean, not continuously. <laughs> the work was hard and dangerous, but could be rewarding and very well compensated. Coal mining is a way of life here. Entire families have worked, uh, have worked the mines. I myself have several family members who have retired or still work down there. I got out. Mm. Not because of these experiences, but because I believe coal mining will end soon. There are other reasons, but I don't want to identify myself. Now, I'm no superstitious backwoods hillbilly who attributes every little thing to the paranormal. (laughs) Easy, easy. (laughs) I have a science and engineering background. Most things have reasonable explanations for the things we see. In these stories of mine, or those that were told to me, this is not the case. They have no explanation. When he says that, how can I phrase this stupid fucking joke? Don't worry about it. Forget it. Okay. When he says these stories of mine, he really means it. That's all I'm trying to say. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I didn't. I don't know how I didn't read that every time I was going through the copy. That's okay. Because it is apropos. Uh, these stories have no explanation is what he's getting at. 
Um, yes. But I suppose that is up to us to determine, isn't it? That's right, because he's no backwoods hillbilly superstitious ding dong <laughs> chump. <laughs> uh, the first time I heard of anything going bump in the dark was relayed by a coworker. <laughs> I was still a red hat at the time, uh, which mm. I think is somewhat similar to a red shirt on Star Trek. Yeah, I thought um, it could be like a Trump supporter. Ooh, maybe. Um, he said, for those who don't know, for the first six months to a year, depending on state law, a new miner must wear a red hard hat. They cannot oh. leave sight or sound of the black hat they are assigned to. So it's just a matter of being able to know who is new and who needs extra guidance and not leave them on their own so they don't get <laughs> lost. Uh, a hacking script or something. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was working with a guy about my age who was a no-nonsense guy when it came to work. He was an extremely competent coal miner. We were working with a bolting machine when I looked over at the rib, the wall, and clearly written on the rib support was the word ghost followed by the time and date, which was a few weeks prior. Ooh. Curious, I asked about the writing. Uh, he gave me a sheepish look and relayed this story to me. So now here's where we enter the quote within a quote portion of this particular post. Wow. What, were the italics so extreme that the letters are just like twisted it's sideways? Always, every letter is sideways, but they're still <laughs> yeah. next to each other. Um <laughs> I was working down here uh, off by myself running the bolter. It was nearing the end of the shift, and I was keeping an eye for the relief crew to arrive on section. I just happened to look across the bolter and see a man standing there looking at me. Mm. I was just about to say something when I realized that this guy was certainly not on our crew. Then I realized his cap light was emitting no light, and it was in fact an old carbide lamp, not our battery-powered ones. Mm. My, my adrenaline spiked, and all I wanted to do was run away, but I was rooted to the spot looking at him, looking at me. He was about five feet away, standing behind the bolting machine, so just visible from the chest area up. Just as I was about to open my mouth to speak or scream, I'm not sure, he turned 90 degrees and began walking along the side of the bolter. What's even stranger is, with every step he took, he would sink lower and lower into the ground until his mm. head was below the edge of the bolting machine. Picture the stairway gag, if you know what I mean. I snapped out of it and ran around the other side of the machine to see no one there. He was gone. Seemingly sank into the earth with each step. In a daze, I walked to the track and saw that the relief man trip had not arrived. It was just our crew. I wrote the time and date on the support to help recall where and when I saw this. I returned to that spot many times, hoping to see him again. I never did. Oof. That's the end of uh, Ballistic Habits' uh, co-worker's story from this first mm -hmm. post. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a short and sweet post up second. Uh, I said, so if you liked my first installment, this one may suit your fancy as well. I've seen these figures many times in several different minds. They're creepy as hell, and I dislike them immensely. My first encounter was just after I got my black hat, allowing me free access to the entire mine. And the internet. <laughs> yep. I was still wet behind the ears, however, and given a job that was essentially a babysitting gig. Go me. The job entailed watching over a machine called a booster drive. It was a machine that was placed along the belt that transported the coal out of the mine on a long wall section. Mm -hmm. Its whole job was to keep the belt moving and the river of coal moving out of the mine to the process facility. It's usually a cake gig if the belt men did their job correctly. Mm. I shovel up any spilled coal and call on the cavalry if shit goes sideways. Now, unlike 95% of the rest of the mine, the booster drives had lighting installed. The light would spill up the entryway only so far, however. Beyond that point, it was that same inky black nothingness I've described before. Ooh. I think he's maybe referring to the comments in the previous post because he didn't say it here. But we oh, can yeah. safely imagine the absolute darkness of being <laughs> underground. Minds are dark, truth out. <laughs> crushing blackness. Uh, <laughs> oh. I've been there for a few days already and kept catching movement out of the corners of my eye. 
I grew up shooting and hunting, so unnatural movement catches my attention pretty rapidly. <laughs> it would always disappear when I tried to look directly at it. Thing is, I would feel frightened and definitely threatened when I would catch fleeting glances of it. It felt ominous. One day, after a pretty active day of jerking my head out the blackness and seeing movement always retreating into the dark, I got angry and foolish. I called out, <laughs> I see you! Whatever it was took two full strides into the light. No way. It was shaped like a man, same size, height, and shape, only it was completely black. A complete absence of light, but it had dimension, a thickness, full and thick like a man. Hmm. I was so scared I got tunnel vision, and it seemed like all the machinery went silent. Well, let's be real. He had tunnel vision the entire time. To be fair, yes. I know it didn't go silent because the belts were still chugging away. It stood there for about five full seconds, did an about face, and walked away into the dark. Hmm. I stood staring at the spot for a good 20 seconds afterward until my vision cleared and the steady roar of the booster filled my ears again. Wow. My, my head stayed in a swivel the rest of the shift. When I was relieved, I asked the man who took my place on the next shift, Uh, you ever see anything moving around down here? He took a long look at me and replied, Fuck. No. I, he took a long <laughs> look at me and replied, Yes. I asked, What the hell is it? He said, I'm not sure I want to know. I wish I could say I never saw wow. it again. That thing scared the shit out of me. I would never work there. Yeah. <laughs> who would who would hang around? The guy's like, oh, the mind demon. Yeah, I just don't, tried don't to ignore worry it. About him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just pretend you don't constantly see it out of the corners of your eye. It'll be fine. Uh, spooky. Yeah, it's the sucky thing about having, like, being on the hook for a job where that's your living. Like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep yeah, doing that's this. Yeah, a good point. <laughs> right. So he expands on his experience in this next post. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, following last post, I received some questions concerning what I saw, what I thought it was, and what, if anything, I thought it wanted. I think I wanted to know these answers, but the truth may have been too much to handle. Mm. This thing creates intense feelings of doom. Whether it emits this intense emotion or it is just a natural reaction to such an unnatural thing, I don't know. This story concerned another encounter with this awful thing. I was working the same supposed cakewalk gig at the same booster location. This thing was discussed between the man I relieved myself and the man who relieved me so like kind of hmm. everyone working that particular job all were aware of this particular situation uh we were all generally terrified of it some days we would notice it hanging around just out of the light making 10 hour shifts seem like an eternity of looking over our shoulders other days it would be completely absent the days it was absent weren't exactly the best either it was almost as bad wondering where that fucking thing was than actually seeing it out there pacing flitting about or worse just watching us in our peripheral vision in the bare edge of the light Ugh. i feel like in this case it's kind of like when there's a large bug in your bedroom mm -hmm. i'm very much a live and let live kind of person and i have no qualms right. about letting even the giantest of spiders just chill up in the corner indefinitely <laughs> but like mm -hmm. as soon as it's unaccounted for that situation becomes less chill oh it's very upsetting i uh was once in an apartment where a house centipede crawled up into a crack. Oh, no. And out of view overhead. And it was Oof. not fun. Yeah, those, those guys are creepy looking. Although I do love them when they're not around. They're really neat. But you don't, yeah, you want to know what they're up to. <laughs> <laughs> Feel better about it. Oh, one time when I first moved to New Hampshire, the first place I lived, uh, I remember I just like turned the light off to go to sleep. And I felt a kind of tickle on my chest. And something told me not to scratch at it, but instead just like turn the light on and look, and it was a silverfish just sitting on me. Ugh. <laughs> I was like, I mean, nope, no thanks. Not enjoyable. Those yeah. are a really weird looking bug. They're weird looking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway, um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes it would be there, sometimes it wouldn't, and that was sometimes kind of worse. Wait, I have another bug story. I'm just okay. kidding. Go on. Okay. <laughs> this shift I was on started like any usual one. 
I attempted to mentally prep myself for another day of shoveling spilled coal while having the shit scared out of me for the next 10 hours or so. After riding the man trip into the booster, I spoke to the stressed out, scared man I was relieving. I told him about the weather topside as we were expecting snow by the time he got outside. He told me it had been a quiet day and he hadn't seen any glimpses of our shadowy visitor. <laughs> uh, we shot the shit for a bit while he waited for the man trip that would be his ride out of the mine. Eventually it arrived and he wished me luck while I told him to have a safe drive home. I was watching the belts cruise along, transporting all that black rock out of the mine, when suddenly, all the power kicked off. Mm. My work area instantly plunged into the pitch blackness and the dull roar of the machinery coasted to a stop. The sudden change from bright light and noise to quiet blackness was unnerving. To say the least. Yeah. Just, if you have like the, the constant machinery roar, at least makes it feel like... Filling the space. Exactly. Um, so if suddenly it's absolute darkness and falls silent. Not great. Not great. Um, I turned on my cap light and made my way to the power center that controls the juice to check if the power kicked locally or if it was more widespread across the mine. Mm. I found all my breakers still set, meaning the outage was more than my booster. Got on my radio and confirmed the situation with the power was mine-wide. I made a seat mm. with some bags of rock dust and leaned against the airlock while to settle in for a bit. Because at this point, I heard it. Footsteps. There were footsteps walking toward me, but no one was there. I was hoping upon hope I would mm. not see that black human-shaped mass out there in the dark. They were heavy footfalls, like the sound of a huge man in work boots. This was bad enough, hearing something walking around near me in the dark that I couldn't see. But sometimes the footsteps would increase from a slow walk to a run to a sprint to footsteps so rapid no human could possibly Ugh. make them. I felt like I was losing my sanity. I cannot possibly describe how incredibly frightened I was. Ugh. Suddenly, the lights and power kicked on without warning. It was standing 10 feet away from me. Ooh. I screamed at it to leave me alone, and it turned around and walked away into the darkness. <laughs> I damn near passed out from the shock and fear of it. If I hadn't been sitting on those dust bags, I'm convinced my knees would have buckled from under me. Once I had calmed down some, I realized I actually had pissed myself a little. Embarrassing to admit, I know, but if I hadn't urinated so recently, I have no doubt I would have soaked my trousers. I hate that fucking <laughs> thing. Well, back to work tomorrow. <laughs> yep, exactly. Not a fan of the shadow monster, but uh, it's just there. Wow. Yeah, he's got another one. He said, uh, this incident was quite oh, different my. from my encounter with the shadowy visitor. This encounter was also unique because I had a coworker directly beside me who also confirmed everything I saw. Hmm. My co-worker I'll refer to as Luke from here out. Luke was an extremely intelligent former military man with a razor-sharp wit. Guy was downright hilarious, and I always enjoyed working with him. Like many other guys I've had the privilege of working with, Luke was a hard-working, honest man who took his commitment to work and family seriously. Oh man, I hope we get to hear a Luke joke. <laughs> we were doing something called a power move in an active coal mining section. To the non-mining folk, bullying out some <laughs> weaker miner. <laughs> to the non-mining folk out there, I will try to elaborate. Imagine that you are vacuuming your carpet. It is a large room and your power cable cannot reach all the way to the other side of the room, so you make some kind of bold and performative action to assert your dominance. Uh -huh. Now you grab an extension cord to finish the carpet. There you go. Uh, he then goes to a pretty long explanation about some technical aspects of mining equipment, but basically, uh, to sum up, I think he says like, they need to extend the power, uh, extend the conveyor belt, and some other stuff to keep going deeper in, and they needed to create a new airtight wall with some stuff that they call mud. It's like a powder stuff they add water to and mix up, and that helps seal up cracks and stuff, which I think mm -hmm. the airtight seal allows for proper ventilation from the coal dust. That was my understanding. Anyway, Luke and I <laughs> had uh, put all the block in place and, uh, from the pallets, and it was mud time. Problem was that the belt man had our water supply cut off to extend the water lines. Our boss told us that we were not permitted to mm -hmm. leave the mine until the wall was finished. Without mm -hmm. proper ventilation, coal could not be mined. 
Uh, coal pays our wage. Coal pays the bills. Problem is, no water, no mud, no wall. The Beltman would not have the water ready until the relief shift had arrived. Different bosses, different orders. Hmm. During the shift, I had noticed large pools of water had collected in the return entry. I told Luke that I knew where usable water was, and we could grab some buckets and collect water there to mix the mud. Mm-hmm. We needed water. It didn't have to be clean water. We were kneeling down collecting some of this water from a large puddle when I saw a miner walking toward us. It was late in the shift, so I assumed it was the fire boss on his inspection. Luke saw him as well. I noticed his cap light was unusually dim. It happens. Uh-oh. Most miners carry a backup cap light uh, for this contingency since batteries wear out over the lifetime of the cap light. I distinctly remember his reflective clothing we were all required to wear. He was walking toward us as we were looking down, filling our buckets with water. When I looked back up, he was completely gone. Vanished completely. I half yelled to Luke, where the fuck did he go? I recall him looking all around us, realizing that there is literally nowhere for him to escape to, then looking Mm. back at me. He opened and closed his mouth a few times as if to offer an explanation and realized there wasn't any. He just got imagining him moving his mouth just like a goldfish or something. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Uh, We finished the wall somewhat late that shift, and this experience became a talking point between us. After discussing several things we had seen, it became apparent to me that he had experienced the shadow entity I had, only not as closely, and that I had met another person who I could confide in uh, what I was seeing without being ridiculed. Mm-hmm. Some men work entire underground careers without experiencing anything unexplainable. Some, like myself, Luke, and others, saw things that shook men to the core. So I have lastly one last post from this series um, to wrap it up. That's a shorter one. Ooh, please do. Um, so he's, Wrap it up, that is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, <laughs> so I ran into a former co-worker at a local store today, and it jogged my memory of an encounter a co-worker had in the mine. I'll refer to my co-worker as Jake from here on out, and I okay. will approve. I spoke with Jake about his encounter a day or two after it had happened, and he was definitely spooked by what he had seen. It was very unlike Jake to be flustered by anything, really, as the man is built like a tank. Go on. He is talking about you. <laughs> you all know the type. Athletic, weightlifter, good with the ladies, and irritatingly good at anything they attempt. Dial it back. In a coal mine, inspections take place several times a day Dial it back. in operating sections, as well as areas that have been dormant for a long time. These guys are known as a fire boss. You mentioned that in the previous one. Uh, fire bossing is serious business, as the lives of many men rest on them doing their job correctly. Mostly they're checking for roof falls, rib rolls, hot rollers on the belt line, correct and adequate airflow, and the scourge of all coal miners, methane. I like all these little terms, by the way. Yeah. It was during a fire boss run that Jake had this encounter. This now becomes a quote from Jake, so I'll do my best to sound like someone named Jake might sound. Okay, let me see. I was on my run signing the date boards and had to pass through a regulator, an airlock. Damn, that is pretty good. Go on, go on. I opened the first door of the dog box, got in, and closed the door. As soon as I closed the door, I heard the latch on the other door behind me get thrown really hard. I felt the air pressure change as the other door was opened. I turned around, surprised, since I wasn't expecting anyone else up in here, and it was looking at me. Ooh. I asked, what was... So this is now... Poster was said, said, I asked, what was looking at you? Jake replied, I don't know what it was. It was completely hairless, like no hair or eyebrows or facial hair. It was a white or grayish color, and I didn't see any color in its eyes. It had this awful look on its face like it was going to rip me up and enjoy itself doing it. I <laughs> threw the other door open against the air pressure and ran. I'll tell you, just as I already told Donnie, our, our mind foreman, that I ain't ever going back up there. They can fire me first. Wow. I felt bad for Jake. He got in some trouble because he flat refused to finish the fire boss run that day. 
Another man had to make his way in and do it before the mine could be cleared for the next shift. Rumor is, the man who finished the fireboss run took a gun with him. It's a federal crime to take a gun underground, but whatever it was that scared Big Jake, I can hardly fault the man. So not only was the guy named Jake, mm. but he had a very on-brand encounter as Jake's go. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. That is the spookiest sounding one for sure yeah. as well. I wonder what happened next. <laughs> yeah, he just, uh, as far as can be told, I don't think the guy who relieved him got killed, so <laughs> apparently it was <laughs> fine. But uh, Maybe that's why we don't again. hear about him anymore. <laughs> Maybe. But, uh, uh, yeah, so... I just imagine working underground for your entire job in 10-hour shifts would be just a super mentally taxing thing, in addition to being physically exhausting. Oh, man. I can't even imagine. Add to that the feeling of being just trapped alone with a horrifying shadow figure the whole time, and I can't even imagine what the toll that would be like. No fun. One thing that I did think of with the shadow figure thing, other than the part where he could just see it directly in front of him when the lights came on, is the idea of just how peripheral vision works. Right. Right. Uh, your ability to detect color and resolve detail in general drops off precipitously mm-hmm. at the edge of your visual field. You have a lot less ability to see colors and, and just general sharpness towards your periphery. But, however, your ability to detect motion actually increases. Mm-hmm. So the reason for that is because the periphery of our retina has fewer cones, the light sensing cells that are good at detecting color and shape, and mm. more rods, which are better at detecting motion. So especially in low light and or high spook conditions, it's easier to <laughs> notice motion out of the corner of your eye without clearly making out what's actually moving. Mm-hmm. So if you're working in an area of total darkness with just some work lights, anything that looks off at all is likely to catch your attention. And mm-hmm. on top of that, when machinery is involved, you've got the added aspect of motion in general. Like if you have coal running up a belt and stuff that right. could lead to some unexpected shadows. Add on top of that, once you're on alert, your senses are heightened making any subsequent visual stimulus that much more likely to spook you. So once you have in your head, oh, there's something weird going on, you're going to be even more freaked out. Everything is going to be that thing. And then if you finally decide, oh, there is an entity down here with me, then all bets are off for how you're going to feel going forward. I could just imagine how primed Mm -hmm. I would easily become down there. I don't care how skeptical a person I am if I were seeing anything (laughs) out of any corner of any part of my eye. (laughs) And then, yeah, because you add... I'd be like, oh, it's real. Goodbye. Even if it's just like in a like a half hour of doing a task somewhere and feeling that way, it would be awful. But then if you know, oh, yeah. oh man, I saw this awful thing, and tomorrow I got to go back down there for 10 oh, hours straight that. and do the same thing again, it's just going to build over time and get worse like and worse and worse. Compounding. And like your mind will be that much more ready to accept it as real as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So spooky. So that's kind of part of what I thought about this. I don't have a specific explanation for either of the instances of different guys seeing other miners there who disappeared. Sure. That's pretty odd and interesting. Nor for the ghoul in that one <laughs> room. No, that's so true. I mean, as ever with the Reddit posts, I always have to take my little grain of salt. Mm-hmm. For but, sure. Um, you know. They make some fun stories, that's for sure. They are fun stories. Absolutely, and I'm burping so much. <laughs> oh my god, it's done. Um, that was really cool, Jake. Thank you. You're oh welcome. That's my random no theme story for today. I enjoyed it. I have one as well. First in for phantoms, most mm-hmm. I dare say. We talk about a new brewery in Western Massachusetts that say it with me now combines elements. <laughs> I forget the order uh, of D and D, heavy metal, heavy metal, and, and beer. beer to, to make. make. Jake, can you tell me? 
beer. <laughs> yes, Good four beer. phantoms. They're awesome. They want you to know that any and all service industry workers or musicians and other artists that have been suffering from the COVID-19 lockdowns can reach out at four phantoms. That's F-O-U-R-P-H-A-N-T-O-M-S beer at gmail.com to arrange a pickup of free beer. Uh, The only restriction is, of course, you will either need to live in Western Massachusetts or travel here to Mm -hmm. nab the goods at the curbside pickup. We will link to where you can do curbside pickup to arrange to buy some of their beer for contact-free purchasing and support them that way. Another way to support them that's quite easy is to go on to Untapped. It's kind of like the Yelp for alcoholic beverages. And (laughs) you can leave a kind and favorable and creative review to help support them. That really helps boost their profile. And uh, it's a good thing to do. So, thank you, Four Phantoms. Back to the show. Yeah. Today, if it wasn't already obvious, Jake, I'll be talking about morphic resonance and morphic fields. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) This was recently suggested by a listener and extended family member of the show, Ben. Uh, I had a lot of fun reading about this stuff, as it's a very goofy example of sort of semi-seductive pseudoscience. Uh, to which I'm sure many out there subscribe, uh, but hopefully after today, you'll see why you also should subscribe to it. <laughs> so, right. Jake, first and foremost, have you uh, heard of morphic resonance theory? I hadn't when you mentioned it, but then as I thought about just the words, I think I might vaguely know what it is, but only through really old episodes of Doctor Who. Oh, interesting. If, if it's what I think it is, but go I on, can we'll imagine that is. show... Uh, capitalizing on this very much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, morphic resonance is a term coined by Rupert Sheldrake in his 1981 mm-hmm. book, A New Science of Life, and it sets the core of his theory of biology and reality. Sheldrake himself proposes this theory as a means of addressing what has long been sought in pretty much any scientific field or really philosophical field, which is, of course, a desire, often phrased as a need, for unification of concepts. Basically, sure, we have all these theories that can explain the various phenomena of life, but they're also sometimes pretty piecemeal. What thread ties it all together? Mm -hmm. Is there any way to divide the whole of reality by just one or two numbers to figure things out? (laughs) And it's this deep-seated desire to sort of sum it all up that I think drives people into believing in things like God or other be-all, end-all concepts. No offense to anyone who does. Just putting it out there. That's part of what can drive people in that direction. There's there's a very human urge to want to just understand things. Absolutely. Why are things the way they are? Well, God made them that way. Okay, I can deal with that. Um, As opposed to yawning void of chaos. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Perpetual entropy, (laughs) giving rise to temporary order, followed by dissolution and oblivion. (laughs) Um, Which is kind of how life goes in a... In a, uh, quarantine so i'm going to give sheldrake the and stage also always and also always and also with you <laughs> uh gonna give sheldrake the stage first largely in his own words to sort of really let his concepts stretch their legs and then we can look at a critical angle and uh we can all go wait huh together <laughs> so here's sheldrake in his own words setting the stage describing the concepts of his own theory of reality. Jake, of course, feel free to interrupt or whatever, whenever or whatever. So, how does it work? (laughs) Over the course of 15 years of research on plant development, I came to the conclusion 
that for understanding the development of plants, go figure, their morphogenesis, <laughs> genes, and gene products are not enough. <laughs> Our understanding also depends on organizing fields. The same arguments apply to the development of animals. Since the 1920s, many developmental biologists have proposed that biological organization depends on fields, variously called biological fields, or developmental fields, or positional fields, or morphogenetic fields. Is there orgone involved in any part of the story? Oh, it's, it's definitely in the room. <laughs> For listeners, in other words, the things we learn broadly from sciences, such as of biology and botany, are useful, but ultimately insufficient to truly understand why life is the way it is is Sheldrake's case. Mm. He goes on. Sorry, what year was this? This, I'm not sure when he's writing. He published his book in 81, though, so this is post-81 at the very least. Okay, I'm just wondering when epigenetics became a bigger field. I want to say the later, mid to later 90s. Okay, all right, all right. I'll give him some slack on that fact then. Yes, and, um, but this is on his website currently as well. Okay, well... <laughs> He goes on, thanks to molecular biology, we know what genes do. They enable organisms to make particular proteins. Other genes are involved in the control of protein synthesis. So a quick translation, some genes make building blocks, other genes control those genes. I'm on board so far. Identifiable genes are switched on and particular proteins made at the beginning of new developmental processes. Mm -hmm. Some of these developmental switch genes are very similar across creatures such as a set known as hox genes, mm -hmm. that's H-O-X, found in fruit flies, worms, fish, and mammals. From an evolutionary perspective, they are what we call highly conserved, largely unchanged among even very distantly related species. But switching on genes such as these cannot in itself determine form. Otherwise, fruit flies would not look different from us. So he almost made it. He almost got there with a reasonable scientific <laughs> argument. He got really close. He goes on. I suggest that morphogenetic fields work by imposing patterns on otherwise random or indeterminate patterns of activity. Further, morphogenetic fields are not fixed forever, but themselves evolve. For example, the morphogenetic fields of poodles have become different from those of their ancestors, wolves, which is sort of a <laughs> fallacy. They're contemporary species. They have a common ancestor that is not necessarily <laughs> a wolf as we know it, but you know what? Whatever. How are these fields inherited? I propose that they are transmitted from past members of the species through a kind of non-local resonance called morphic resonance. I find it interesting that there's an answer already supplied by just genes. <laughs> But he's saying, no, it has to be this other thing instead. Yeah, Jake, jeans alone aren't going to cut it today. But I wore jeans for the first time in weeks. Ooh. <laughs> and those are cutoffs, so <laughs> I guess they are going to cut it. <laughs> Just kidding. Right. I think for listeners, for myself as well, this is the point at which I start to go, I'm, I'm losing my grasp on what mm -hmm. he's talking about. <laughs> uh, effectively, he's suggesting... Morphogenetic fields, he's going to describe what they are now as, as being the directives in shape-taking. Mm. The fields organizing the activity of the nervous system are likewise inherited through morphic resonance, conveying a collective, instinctive memory. Each individual both draws upon and contributes to the collective memory of the species. This means 
that new patterns of behavior can spread more rapidly than would otherwise be possible. For example, if rats of a particular breed learn a new trick in Harvard, then rats of that breed should be able to learn the same trick faster all over the world, say in Edinburgh and Melbourne. Or Melbourne. In Melbourne. I like it. There is already evidence from laboratory experiments discussed in the New Science of Life that this actually happens. What? Uh, another good thing to note, no direct references other than to his book. Great. The resonance of a brain with its own past states also helps to explain the memories of individual animals and humans. There is no need for all memories to be, quote-unquote, stored inside the brain. They can be in the cloud. Basically, that's what he's arguing for. <laughs> Something like a combination of cloud and quantum hyperplato mold. Um, social groups are likewise organized by fields, as in schools of fish and flocks of birds. Human societies have memories that are transmitted through the culture of the group and are most explicitly communicated through the ritual reenactment of a founding story or myth, as in the Jewish Passover celebration, the Christian Holy Communion, and the American Thanksgiving dinner, as we all know, American <laughs> being another of the major religious sects. <laughs> Through which the past becomes present through a kind of resonance with those who have performed the same rituals before. So if it isn't obvious, he is kind of conflating a shitload of stuff all at once right now. <laughs> sure is. Morphic fields underlie our mental activity and our perceptions and lead to a new theory of vision, as discussed in The Sense of Being Stared At, a book that he actually wrote. The existence huh. <laughs> of these fields is experimentally testable through the sense of being stared at itself. There is already much evidence that this sense really exists. It's the seventh sense. <laughs> you can take part in staring experiments yourself through this website. I have not tried it. The morphic fields of social groups connect together members of the group, even when they are many miles apart, and provide channels of communication through which organisms can stay in touch at a distance. Basically the same thing twice. They help <laughs> provide an explanation for telepathy. There is now good evidence that many species of animals are telepathic. Oh, boy. And telepathy seems to be a normal means of animal communication, as discussed <laughs> in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. <laughs> telepathy is normal, not paranormal. Natural, not supernatural. And is also common between people, especially people who know each other well. In the modern world, the commonest kind of human telepathy occurs in connection with telephone calls. More than 80% of the population say they have thought of someone for no apparent reason who then called, or that they have known who was calling before picking up the phone in a way that seems telepathic. And, you know, there's no connection that he makes there with the people who think of a person and they don't call, or they think of somebody and someone else calls, or someone calls before they think about it. Because those are unremarkable events that you wouldn't remember. Precisely. Controlled experiments on telephone <laughs> telepathy have given repeatable positive results that are highly significant statistically, <laughs> as summarized in The Sense of Being Stared At, and described in detailed technical papers, which you can read on this website. So everything is pretty self-referential here. <laughs> oh yeah. But you know, he's a maverick. He's the first of his field, and he needs to get the word out. Makes sense. So... If all of this is confusing, don't worry. He has a summary for us, which breaks <laughs> down into six extremely obvious details, which are as follows. The hypothesized properties of morphic fields at all levels of complexity can be summarized 
as this. One, they are self-organizing holes, which just a quick thing for me to jump in on. Why, I ask Sheldrake, can morphic fields self-organize, but the biological structure of creatures can't? (laughs) In other words, I'm now realizing I actually think morphic fields need what I'm going to propose are (laughs) shaping spaces. (laughs) That actually determine the forms of the myriad morphic fields, determining the forms of the qualities of reality. That makes sense. you got to have, you know, something accounting for all these different aspects of it, so. Exactly. Uh, number two, they have both a spatial and a temporal aspect and organize spatio-temporal patterns of vibratory or rhythmic activity. In other words, they organize reality as we know it. Three, they attract the systems under their influence towards characteristic forms and patterns of activity whose coming into being they organize and whose integrity they maintain. The ends or goals towards which morphic fields attract the systems under their influence are called attractors. (laughs) The pathways by which systems usually reach these attractors are called creodes. Ooh. This was never brought up before. (laughs) It is extremely confusing now. (laughs) Number four, they interrelate and coordinate the morphic units or holons that lie within them, which in turn are holes organized by morphic fields. Morphic fields contain other morphic fields within (laughs) them in a nested hierarchy or holarchy. (laughs) But I feel like just a few bullet points ago, they were each self-organizing What about my shaping spaces? (laughs) Number five, they are structures of probability, and their organizing activity is probabilistic. And number six, they contain a built-in memory given by self-resonance with a morphic unit's own past and by morphic resonance with all previous similar systems. This memory is cumulative. The more often particular patterns of activity are repeated, the more habitual they tend to become. And never mind the fact that they had to come from somewhere to begin with. Oh, my God. So... Now that we all get it so hard, mm-hmm. uh, who is Alfred Rupert Sheldrake? What's his fucking deal? <laughs> For what it's worth, Sheldrake was trained in 20th century scientific methods. He has a PhD in biochemistry from Cambridge. Hmm. Is it his? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, but as nicely stated by Robert Todd Carroll on his site, The Skeptic's Dictionary, quote, Sheldrake prefers 19th century vitalism, which is a metaphysical doctrine that living organisms possess a non-physical inner force or energy that gives them the property of life. Uh, In other words, soul over mechanism. Mm. And teleological to mechanistic models of reality. reality. Meaning explanations of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than the cause by which they arise. A classic example of a teleological explanation is in reply to, why do forks have prongs? Answer, they have prongs to help humans eat food. (laughs) (laughs) It makes logical sense in some regard, but is not mechanistically why the fork has a prong. (laughs) His main interests, he goes on, his main interests are in the paranormal, although he claims his studies into whether people can tell when someone is staring at them are conclusive. Others have been unable to duplicate his results. No surprise. He prefers a romantic vision of the past to the bleak picture of a world run by technocrats who want to control nature and destroy much of the environment in the process. In short, he prefers metaphysics to science, though he seems to think he can do the former, but call it the latter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, if it weren't already clear, Carol has no love for Sheldrake. 
Um, <laughs> and this becomes increasingly clear as he dismantles morphic resonance theory, if you don't mind me continuing. Not at all. Morphic resonance, from here on MR, is put forth as if it were an empirical term, but it is no more empirical than L. Ron Hubbard's engram, the alleged source of all mental and physical illness in Scientology. What the rest of the scientific world terms lawfulness, which is the tendency of things to follow patterns we call laws of nature, Sheldrake calls simply morphic resonance. He describes it as a kind of memory in things determined not by their inherent natures, but by repetition. He also describes MR as something which is transmitted via morphogenetic fields. This gives him a conceptual framework wherein information is transmitted mysteriously and miraculously through any amount of space and time without loss of energy, and presumably without loss or change of content through something like mutation and DNA replication. God forbid we look at that. <laughs> Thus, room is made for physical as well as uh, psychical transmission of information. As Sheldrick says, it is not at all necessary for us to assume that the physical characteristics of organisms are contained inside the genes, which may in fact be analogous to transistors tuned in to the proper frequencies for translating invisible information into visible <laughs> form. Thus, morphogenetic fields are located invisibly in and around organisms and may account for such hitherto unexplainable phenomena as the regeneration of severed limbs by worms and salamanders, phantom limbs, the holographic properties of memory, telepathy, and the increasing ease with which new skills are learned as greater quantities of a population acquire them. Jake, just want to check in with you. I know I'm doing a lot of reading of crazy sounding shit so far. As a as a listener to this segment yourself, where where are you sitting right now? Wait, huh? That was the option earlier, right? <laughs> oh, very much so. Okay, <laughs> very much so. If you if you take nothing else away from this, we have a lot of science that explains how things work in very mechanistic, testable ways. Mm-hmm. Sheldrake is simply going too boring. It also <laughs> needs to be magic. <laughs> exactly. He's saying, "Oh, this stuff doesn't answer the question." It's like, no, it does. You just gotta look at it. He's like, "I don't wanna. I want different things no. to answer the question. I want a different answer than the one that already exists." To continue a little more of Carol's takedown, while this metaphysical proposition does seem to make room for telepathy as well as other phenomena, it does so at the expense of ignoring Occam's razor. For listeners who may have forgotten or may have never heard of Occam's razor. This is a useful concept essentially stating that in all matters of explanation, the simplest available is the best. For instance, you could say that your car broke down because the transmission failed and gremlins were messing with the engine, but this would be willfully ignoring Occam's razor. It was just gremlins. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, uh, and one reason that a lot of people like to make bad faith arguments against Occam's razor is saying, oh, well, you know, just because it's simpler doesn't mean it's, it's got to be right. Simpler here means makes the fewest assumptions. Right. Well said. If nothing else, it'll give you fewer variables to fiddle with to induce a desired or expected outcome. Yes. Perhaps that's another way of putting it. Yeah. Long story short, telepathy, phantom limbs, other things can be feasibly explained without using morphic resonance. Go figure. Mm Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the notion that new skills are learned with increasing ease as greater quantities of a population acquire them, which should sound ridiculous at sight, (laughs) is indeed ridiculous, also known as the hundredth monkey phenomenon. I've never heard about that before, (laughs) and I should have read about it before this episode. (laughs) So, 
He is full of it. And by it, you mean Morphic Fields. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I'd just like to finish out my segment today with a fun little bit of Reddit reading myself. Mm-hmm. A question posted by user Metafacetious asks, <laughs> How should I, a non-scientist, think about Rupert Sheldrake's Morphic Resonance? To which SX Bennett replied, You really just shouldn't. <laughs> perfect <laughs> he goes on but i felt it best read as that <laughs> that's pretty great um i also i want to bring up that on sheldrake's own website he has a curated selection of quote-unquote reactions to his work that are basically uniformly negative <laughs> for example quote ted ban ted the talk conference pop mm-hmm. conference thing bans the science delusion which was the title of a talk sheldrake gave at a tedx conference in 2013 the framing reads as follows, quote, in response to protests from two hardcore materialists in the U.S., <laughs> the talk was taken out of circulation by Ted, relegated to a corner of their website, and stamped with a warning label, which I'm like, dude, when people are telling you your shit is poison, it's not something to put up as like, check it out. <laughs> He's seeing it as a badge of honor, like, oh, see, yeah. this, we're, we're, we're revealing the truth exactly. they don't want you to know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> There you have it. Morphic mm-hmm. resonance, a fucking load of hot nonsense, and uh, super fun. Super <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> yep. And it seems to, I mean, from the very beginning of it, it seemed to be coming from a place of, all right, science as we know it doesn't have answers to these questions, but it's like, but it does. And then continues from there. Like, it just it immediately assumes no science can answer this. We need to make up a brand new thing rather than right. work with the tools we already have to understand better. So. At the time he was first writing that, yeah, we didn't fully understand the idea of epigenetics, stuff like that, um, phenotypic plasticity, uh, developmental <laughs> plasticity, things where right. our genes do code for certain stuff, but um, how they carry out that particular task can change over time. So they may make more or less of their protein product based on uh, exterior factors exactly one of my favorite examples of that is the mexican blind tetra it's the kind of Mm. fish lives in caves and normally if you find it in caves it has no eyes it has no pigment it's totally pale and eyeless you could take eggs of the tetra um, that you find in a cave because it's the exact same species different populations live in and outside of caves what's outside look like normal fish they're like very colorful they have functional eyes they look totally normal you could take eggs from the tetra inside of a cave and outside of a cave and swap them and let them develop in those swapped environments and they would look totally opposite oh i love that the ones that develop in in total darkness um because there is no uv light actually um hitting the developing embryos and stuff it does not trigger certain genes to actually function so there's um the genes for developing pigment don't bother to fire off, nor do the ones for full eye development. Something to do with lens development doesn't happen, so that causes the rest of the eye not to bother to be formed. Oh, fascinating. And that's all kind of an energy-saving thing for the fish. If they don't need those traits inside of the cave, then it's going to waste energy trying to have them. Um, and just over time, it worked out that, oh, they, the ones who had genes that didn't turn on unless required uh, survived better. But they're the exact same species, the exact same genes doing totally different things in different environments. No morphic fields required. It's just the genes doing their jobs. Exactly. Well said. 
and right rather than morphic fields or morphic resonance simply abiotic and environmental effects mm-hmm. <laughs> influencing a very highly responsive network of genes and uh, i like too that you raise the point that is uh that needs that bears repeating about evolution in general and gene expression in the immediate which is that life certainly does get very complex you know we can think of all these very fascinating forms take a spider goddamn it can like spin silk of all certain different kinds it can it has eight eyes eight legs all this kind of complexity in all cases life will take the simplest most parsimonious route to solve a problem mm-hmm. so when things become more complex over time through evolution it is not because evolution necessarily makes things more complex or more advanced or more what have you it's simply trying to solve the problem the easiest way it can. So higher pressures induce greater change. Yes. And it's not trying. I mean, we, we say that just as a kind of way to simplify, but it's not happening on purpose. There's no it's goal. Not, yeah. It's not a, there's no agency. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm even inducing more or introducing another <laughs> fallacy. If you want to uh, have, if you want to hear our real soapbox talk about how evolution works, check out episode 89, Monkey Business. And we, there we go. We talk some some deep evolution stuff and some things that uh common misconceptions that are pretty much enforced from school onward so you can get a better understanding of how how evolution works but in general it's just like hey stuff that happens to work out well uh, it keeps happening and that's why (laughs) why we have you know complex stuff like elephants and human beings and really neat fish at the same time that we have yeast and bacteria all living at the same time because like they're just different solutions to the same problem, and that problem is how be alive, make more. Keep the copier operating. <laughs> well, that's it for me. The end. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, now it's been a little while since we've done this, but before we you know totally wrap up, I think it's time we thank some of our patrons on Patreon. Ooh. Would you say? Oh, yes. While I set this up, do you want to explain how that works? Oh yes, we have here the. Pander function, which is, of course, the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk function, which is essentially a computer program that runs on our weird arcane computer we developed last April. Yeah, we actually have sort of special ports in the backs of our heads, unlike any kind of movie. So we'll fire up the computer here, turn it on, there it goes, and we will plug these into the backs of our heads. There it goes. And now we're going to focus on... Wilson Turk of somewhere. Wilson. All right. Patron of ours. And what we're going to do is determine which of the cryptids in the world he should most be on the lookout for. So if we focus on his name, we're going to find that he should look out for Drop drop Bears. Wow. Drop Bears are large, vicious, and carnivorous relatives of the peaceful, herbivorous koala. Do be on guard, unlike other cryptids we have had downloaded into our brains. The drop bear's method of attack is brutal, and I have it on good account, will kill humans easily. Yes, they uh, they stay hiding in a tree, usually gum trees or eucalyptus, which I think, I mean, they're carnivorous, not herbivorous, so unlike the normal koala, which eats eucalyptus, they just try and blend in, I think. So they see prey walk underneath, and they drop down and brutally attack the victim's head using its teeth and claws. I will say right now that, at the very least, its teeth, its mouth in general, looks nothing like a tiger's mouth. Nope, it's definitely not photoshopped. 
onto a koala. So Wilson, a way you can avoid the drop bear? Simply put forks into your hair, spread toothpaste behind your ears, armpits, or on your neck. Pee on yourself, <laughs> and then only speak in an Australian accent. <laughs> I don't know what else there needs to be said. Yeah, I think the important thing is that um, if you go to Australia and people tell you to worry about the drop bear and tell you to do all this stuff to yourself, don't be concerned that they're just messing with you. This is a very real creature you need to be very, very careful of, so please follow all of those instructions. And you'll be safe. Thank you so much for your support. We really Thank do appreciate much. it. Uh, if you want to support us on Patreon at any level at all, you can have your name entered into our random draw thing to uh, have your cryptid calculated by the panda function. We should unplug that, by the way. Oh, like a yeah, good idea. let's do that. There we go. A lot of other cool rewards beyond just the $1 level. You can also get some cool stickers and um, curated outtakes from each month. Oh, yeah. Uh, bonus mini-sodes. We should record some more of those. Yeah. And uh, just a lot of really neat fun stuff. Yep. You'll be helping make this show happen, which we are perpetually appreciative of. Yes, especially in these crazy times. Oh, my God. Yeah. Another non-monetary way you can support us, if you like, is to leave a review for us, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. That's a really good place for um, really bringing attention to the show. I understand we recently got a new review on there, which uh, I just said last time we wouldn't be reading them on, on the air because I thought it was kind of tacky, but I feel like we should share one. I'm going to tack into the wind. Um, <laughs> and uh, I already brought this to Jake's attention quickly before, but if you and the rest of our listeners can stand it, here comes another new review, this time from listener microwavingants.com, <laughs> entitled, Highly Recommended! Exclamation point, to illustrate a point that I have about podcasts and listener feedback in general. After that glowing <laughs> title, microwavingants.com writes, quote, This podcast blends a scientific, rationalist approach to tales of the paranormal. It's a great combination of genuine curiosity deep skepticism, and tangential, silly humor. Love it. End quote. Which, wow. At this point, I'm feeling great. Yeah. Another listener who really gets it, who really understands what we're trying to do here. <laughs> and then I look at that star count. The only thing, the sorting algorithm, can be designed to give anything close to a shit about. Exactly. <laughs> and microwavingants.com, for all their love, gives us... Four out of five <laughs> possible stars. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. Who cares, man? Four out of five is great. <laughs> and sure, you're not wrong, but you're also entirely wrong. <laughs> and let me tell you why. First of all, I just want to say on the record, my gravingants.com is from the UK. Describing in a very sweet, articulate, and to-the-point manner how much you'd love something and then giving it basically a flat B. B minus, actually. This is the most British kind of <laughs> review ever. <laughs> but more broadly, guys, if you really love it, just slap that fifth star in there. Mm -hmm. Good lord. They don't cost you nothing. Yeah. And more broadly still, in this wild and overpopulated world of <laughs> podcasting, I'm sorry to say it, but deep down inside, you've got to realize there's really only two kinds of pod. <laughs> shows that are worth listening to, and shows that are actually straight up shit <laughs> so please don't embarrass yourself and future prospective <laughs> listeners by pretending anyone out there is cracking their knuckles to prepare a search for the latest lukewarm <laughs> yawn fest available there just ain't so in short 
microwavingants.com how dare you leave us anything less than five stars and thank you kindly for your very nicely worded four star review yes and uh yeah we hope you'll join us next week where we're going to talk about a thing that we'll decide by then yeah i hope so <laughs> i mean theoretically we'll know what we're talking about by the time we hit record and uh, we'll catch you then yes indeed goodbye bye